So we're going through the book of Genesis. The word Genesis means in the beginning. We're in our third week, so today we're looking at chapter 3. In chapter 1, we see that God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. That's who God is. He creates life out of nothing. And then he speaks to the heavens and the earth. And as God speaks, he creates life. He creates light, the stars, the moon, the sun. He creates land with trees and flowers. He creates the seas with animals in the sea, birds in the sky, and animals on the ground. And then in Genesis, the end of Genesis 1, we see that God creates man. The Bible says, let us create man in our image. The us refers to God, which is a triune God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. We don't understand it. But God then, the Bible says, takes the dust of the earth and creates man. That's Genesis 1. Genesis 2, which Eric preached on last week, becomes more specific in the way that God explains that he creates man. The Bible says that God reaches into the dust with his hands. You can see it's personal. God uses his hands and he creates man. And then the Bible says in Genesis 3, 7, that God breathes into the nostrils of man life and God creates man. God creates man to have dominion, to rule and to reign the, uh, all over the earth. And God takes Adam and places him in the Garden of Eden. And when he's in the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam, Adam, there are two trees in this garden. The tree of life, the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. This tree here, the fruit of this tree, do not eat it. If you eat the fruit of this tree, you will die. Then, so God gives this command to Adam. God sees that Adam is alone. He needs a helper. He creates Eve, and the two become one, and we see marriage. So that's the end of chapter 2. The difference in chapter 1 and 2 about how God created the world was that God spoke and the world came into existence. With man, what God did is he breathed into man the breath of life. In other words, God breathed into man a soul. And that differentiates man from the rest of creation. In the image of God, we have been created, and we have been created with a soul. It sets us apart, and God gives us dominion over the earth. Scientists say that we don't have a soul, that humans aren't different from the rest of the world. What is this, the soul of man? If you had to explain to someone what a soul is, it would be something that's quite difficult. We, we think maybe we do have a soul, but how would we actually describe what the soul of man is? Dallas Willard, and there's a, there's a slide that goes on, he, this is how he explains what the soul of man is. In the middle of this diagram <laughs> is, okay, if you see it, there we go. The middle circle is the will. The will is our ability to choose, the will of man. Around the will is the mind. The mind is what we think about. 
our emotions, our feelings, the consciousness of man, the fact that man actually has values, the morality of man. That is the man's mind. And the third is your body. This is your body, your expressions, your outer appearance, what you see. Remember we said God was a triune God. He creates man in three parts. And all of those things together are what is known as the soul of man. We are differentiated from the rest of, human, uh, the, rest of the world because of one, that will, that ability to choose based on conscience and based on morality and our values that we have. What we think about in our minds, what we feel, what we feel all of these emotions affect our will, what we actually end up choosing. The will, that is what your will is. I'm going to read what Dallas Willard says about our soul. So, the soul, according to Dallas Willard, is when these three, the mind, your will, and your body, are integrated together, working together in harmony. Our soul is created for God. God creates our soul for himself. Not for our own selves, but for God. Dallas Willard gives this quote in his book, uh, Renovation, of the, Renovation of the Heart. What matters most? What marks your existence? The really deep reason why human life matters so much is because of this tiny, fragile, vulnerable, precious thing about you called your soul. You are not just a self. You are a soul. You are a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God. Made to run to God, which means that you are not made to be self-sufficient. If we are connected to God and connected to others in community, our souls are healthy. But man has often chosen to replace the soul with the self. Everything that we face today is about yourself. Believe in yourself. Express yourself. Be a better you. You deserve to be treated well. You deserve all of these things, and we start to think that we can live for ourselves. And when we replace our souls with ourselves, living fearlessly, living for, for, to express our independence, we come to a place where our souls become unhealthy. Dallas Willard says what matters most, more than anything else in this world, is the state of your soul. This morning, what is the state of our souls that we look at? Solomon, King Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12 in the Bible, says this. He says, I have come to the end of my life. He was the wealthiest man who ever lived. Mm -hmm. He had incredible palaces, everything you could imagine. He had so many wives and concubines. He had status. He was the king. He had wisdom beyond anybody had ever had. He said, I have pursued self to the utmost, and I have gained everything that self can offer me. And at the end of my life, I realized it was all vanity. It was chasing after wind. I realized 
This is the one purpose of man. To fear God and obey His commandments. And so that is what God has. Our souls are made for God. We're made to need God. And we are, this is the thing, we are responsible ourselves for the state of our souls. That's our responsibility. External circumstances also have very little impact on the state of our souls. We must be aware of where we are in our ability to actually be a whole and healthy individual. So that is where we we ended up. Looking at creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Before I go into Genesis 3, if our hearts, if people's souls are unhealthy or broken, only God can heal the state of our souls. Genesis 3, that was Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the world. He creates man with the soul. And he said to Adam, remember these two trees, don't, you can do whatever you want, just don't eat the fruit of this tree. Adam and Eve had the entire Garden of Eden. There were oceans, rivers, waterfalls, animals. They had the whole Garden of Eden to explore. And Genesis 3 starts with the two of them standing at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they had everything to explore. And how many times in my life has God said to me, I have given you everything. The one thing that I don't want you to have, you become focused on and you lose gratitude and you lose the fact that I've given you so much in your life because you become obsessed with something that you don't have. And here Adam and Eve are standing at the tree and they're looking at this fruit and the devil comes, the Bible, the Bible tells us in Isaiah and in Revelation that the serpent is actually, the snake is actually the devil. The devil comes to Eve and says, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit and the trees in the garden? The first thing that the devil does is he questions the authority of the word of God. In our lives, it's the first thing that the devil will say. Did God really say? Is the Bible really the truth that you have to live your your lives by? Is it that important, the word of God? Did God really say? We heard the power in Genesis 1, the power and authority that we have in the word of God. The devil comes to try and undermine that authority. The second thing the devil tries to undermine is the goodness of God. Any time in our lives the word of God or the goodness of God is questioned, know for certain that that's the devil, that's Satan. God is always good. He is always kind. And he is always merciful. Any circumstance that we face in our lives, if the goodness of God is questioned, that's the devil against you. God wants to withhold something from you, he says to Eve. Did God really say don't eat of the fruit in these trees? Is God really good? And Eve, who was given dominion over the animals, engages in a conversation with, with the serpent and says, God said that just this tree, remember Eve had, had a name, the knowledge of good and evil, you were told the name of that tree. This tree, God said, it's just this tree that I mustn't eat the fruit of. I mustn't even touch the tree, she said, else I'll die. 
God did not say she mustn't just touch the tree. He said just don't eat the fruit. So what is Eve doing is she's actually adding into the strictness of what God is saying. People can add to the Bible or they take away from the Bible. If we add to the word of God, it's legalism. If we take from the word of God, it's licentiousness. The Bible is very clear and very easy to understand. Eve, this tree, don't eat its fruit, you will die. Always the word of God is simple. The Bible says a child can understand it. It is not complicated. So then she said, it's just this tree, she says to the devil. And then the devil comes back and he says to her, surely you won't die. The number one thing, the number one doctrine in the beginning of Genesis that the devil comes against is the judgment of God. Surely you won't die. Surely sin doesn't lead to death. God just knows your eyes will be opened and you will be like him and you will know the difference between good and evil. That is what we face of in the world today even. People, God won't judge. There's no judgment for sin. Everything, everything's fine. Everything's, everything's going to be okay. In Matthew 7, verse 13 to 27, Jesus reaffirms the judgment of God. He says, narrow is the way and few find it. There will come a time when we, we will come before God, the Bible says, in his love and in his justice and in his mercy. But the consequences of sin is death. The devil wanted to, to, to go, speak against the judgment of God against sin. In that, in, in that example of Matthew, it speaks about two houses. There's a story of two houses. The one house is built on the rock, which is the word of God, when the circumstances come, the, words, the, the house stands. There's a second house that's built on the sand. When the, when the circumstances of life, the waves and the wind and the hurricanes come, this house falls because it's standing on the sand. So there is a judgment. And the devil is coming against, Did, surely God won't, surely you're not going to die. There's not going to be a judgment. God just doesn't want your eyes to be open because you'll be like him knowing the difference between good and evil. When I was younger, growing up, and I went to Sunday school, I would always color in a picture. When I thought of this, the, God, the Garden of Eden, we'd always color in a picture. There was Eve with this long hair, and she was eating an apple, and there was a snake. I mean, I don't know if anybody else grew up the church and was familiar with this picture. You would always color, color in. And I was like, Eve ate the apple, and then... She was sent out of the garden and God judged her. You know, like that was my story that I thought in my mind about, about the story of Adam and Eve. It wasn't the apple that she ate, like in the story. Well, what's that story with, um, I was going to say Sleeping Beauty, with the seven, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and the witch came and she ate the apple and there, was, and there was poison and she died. It was not in the apple or the fruit that God was saying. What God was doing here in the Garden of Eden is he was confronting the will of man. Just do what I say, I'm God. Do not eat this tree. It was more in the commandment that God gave than in the properties of the tree. God creates man with a free will. We have the ability to choose. Because we have the ability to choose God, 
we also have the ability not to choose him. And in his sovereignty and in his power and in the pain that it causes him because there's suffering in the world today. There's suffering because of the freedom of choice that man has given, is given. And the fact that God does not control us in that freedom of choice. He gives us the opportunity to choose life or to choose death. He gives us the freedom of choice to respond to who he is. That's all that the tree was. It was the will of man that was confronted. It was the independence of Eve that she took the fruit because she wanted self-preservation more than she wanted to submit to the lordship of God in that situation. And she ate of the fruit and death entered into the garden. This thing about our will and what we choose It's what we think about, what we fill our minds with and our emotions that gives us this ability to choose. But we do have the ability to choose. When I was at school, we had a group of Christians that came through and they came and spoke at break and they sang and they did a... One guy stood up and he spoke and he said, this is what sin is like. And I've never forgotten it. He said it's like um, vomit covered in chocolate. Because sin actually tastes good. But you end up with your mouth full of vomit. And I've realized that that's exactly what sin is. That's exactly what sin is. The Bible is very clear on certain things. Don't have sex before marriage. God says that not because he wants to withhold good from us, but because he knows that you become soul tired with people and it damages your soul. God says, forgive. God wants you to forgive because of the state of your own soul. It affects you if you have unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart. God says, tithe, not because he wants our money, but because it breaks fear of money, breaks materialism over our lives. God's word is absolutely pure in its entirety. Everything about it is for the state of your soul to be whole. He does not withhold anything good from us. Ever in our lives, if we think that God is withholding good from us, we need to stop and look at a third tree, the tree of Calvary. Jesus went into another garden. He went into the garden of Gethsemane. And he says, he's, he's, the Bible says he, he wrestled with God. He said, God, if there is another way, please, I do not want to go to the cross. And then he got to a place where he said, God, not my will, but your will be done. And in that time, the devil was defeated before Jesus even walked up the hill because his will was submitted to the will of the Father. And as he submitted his will to the Father, there's another tree, a tree that we can never, ever doubt the goodness of God or God's love for us. Everything about God is good. That tree of Calvary is where God said, Eve lost dominion. She gave up, the, Adam and Eve gave up the ability to rule and reign because they submitted their wills to the devil and they gave that up and they were removed from the Garden of Eden because the consequences of sin is death. We can't get away from it. We can't deny it. We can't try and pretend it doesn't happen because it is. But God took 
the consequences of sin in our lives and died on the cross for us and gave us back the dominion and the power and the authority to reign and rule again because he took back the keys of death and defeated the devil. And he showed us how it is to have the kingdom of God among us as a people. When the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? What did Jesus say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God to be done, to submit ourselves to the lordship and the will of what God has for our souls to be whole and to bring the kingdom of God among us as a people. Everywhere we go, we take the kingdom of God with us. And Jesus showed us, what does this mean to bring the kingdom back? What does this mean to rule and reign in authority? This is how it is, Jesus said. You become the least. You serve. You lay down your lives. You forgive. You're kind. You're gracious. In that way, the kingdom comes. You become the least if you want to rule. And Jesus didn't even tell us that, but he showed us that. And he went all the way to the cross, and he did die because the consequences of sin are death. But then he rose from the dead, and all authority has been given to his church. That's us. So as they eat the fruit, and they realize that they are naked. So they take fig leaves, they hide themselves, and they run away and they hide. That's what sin does to some people. They, it causes shame, and they want to cover shame and run from the presence of God. And because God is so incredibly amazing, he says, where are you? He knew where they were. He wanted them to say, he was, wanted them to say here we are. And then Adam says, you know, um, we realized we were naked, so we hid and we were ashamed. Then God says, did you eat from the tree of the fruit? Did you eat that fruit that I told you not to eat? And what does Adam say? It was Eve. (laughs) Eve gave me the fruit and then I ate it. What does Eve say? Eve, did you eat the fruit? Actually, it was the devil. He, He tempted me. This is the thing about sin. Is to just admit it and repent. There was a man in the Bible called David. He's a king. And the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. There's a story in Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. It's quite a long story. I'm just going to recap it. About the sin of David with Bathsheba. David was the king. And if you want to, you can read the story, but I'm just going to tell it to you. In the beginning, so the Bible starts off and it says, at the time when kings go to war, it's springtime, David was supposed to be at war. He stayed at home. He stayed at home and he went to the top of the roof and he was looking out and he saw a beautiful woman having a bath. Her name was Bathsheba. So he called his servants and he said to his servants, who is that woman? And the servant said, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. The Bible says, says that David took her. He called her, he was the king, to come to him. She was a woman. She had, no, she had no say. She had to obey the king. She didn't seduce him. She, she had to come. He called her, the Bible says, and he lay with her because he chose to. 
And then a few weeks later, she sends a message to the king, David, to King David, I'm pregnant. So David was, oh my gosh. So he calls Uriah back from the wall. And he says to Uriah, how's the, Uriah arrives back, he says, how's, how's the war going? Joab is there, he's the commander of the armies. They're fighting against the, the Ammonites. Jo, Uriah tells him about the war. And he says, well, go home tonight. And he sends Uriah off and he sends a present after Uriah, a gift, the Bible says. The next morning, he wakes up and Uriah's lying at the floor, at the, at the door of the palace. So King David calls him in and he said, why were you lying at the floor, why did, at the door? Why didn't you go home to your wife? Uriah was such an honorable man. The Bible later says he was one of David's 20 mighty men. That's how incredible Uriah was. He had incredible integrity and loyalty and faithfulness. And he said, I can't go home to my wife and eat and drink and enjoy her while the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and the rest of the soldiers and Joab are out and camping in the fields at battle. How can I do such a thing? So David, the next night, brings Uriah into his, into his palace, and they eat, and he gets Uriah drunk. Because now he thinks he'll definitely go home. But Uriah still does not go home. Even when he's drunk, he lies in the door of the palace of the king. So David writes a letter to Joab, who's leading the armies, and he says to Joab, Joab, I want you to do this. I want you to put Uriah in the front of the battle, and you must go where there's really, really heavy fighting, and you must withdraw and make sure Uriah gets struck down dead, which is exactly what Joab did, even though jo Uriah was so faithful to Joab. And then sends a message back to David. The messenger comes and says, this is a message from Joab, Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David says, don't worry, people die in battle. It's okay. The Bible also says that, that Bathsheba mourned and lamented for her husband. She loved him. David called her into the palace. She became his wife and she gave birth to a son. The Bible says this thing did not please the Lord that David had done. So he sent Nathan the prophet to King David and said, David, I just want to tell you the story that God says. There, there were these two men. One was wealthy and one was poor. The wealthy man had lots of flocks, herds. He was wealthy. The poor man had one lamb. They loved this lamb, the family. It ate from their, it ate from their bowl, it drank from their cup. It would fall asleep in their arms at night. The Bible actually says it was like a daughter to them. They loved this lamb, this poor man and his family. A visitor came to the wealthy man and he wanted to prepare a meal. So he took the lamb from the poor man, prepared the meal, and they ate the lamb. David's listening to the story and he says, Oh my gosh, that is terrible. This man deserves to die. And then Nathan says to him, David, you the man. I gave you everything you wanted. And if you wanted more, I would have given it to you. But you took that which was not yours. In the Garden of Eden, it's a similar story. They had everything they wanted. They took the one thing that wasn't theirs to take. You took another man's wife. The consequences of sin is death. The child that is born to you will die. 
The Bible says that David was struck with repentance. That this is the difference between King David and the difference between Adam. He said, God, I have sinned against you. This sin was terrible. In the Old Testament, there were only two sins that weren't forgiven. Adultery and murder. David committed them both. But David had an understanding of the grace of God and the mercy of God. He was able to see into the new covenant. I gave you everything, and you took that which wasn't yours. And he, as, he, as David repented, the Bible says that the child became sick, and David fell on his face before God and cried out to God for mercy. God, please will you save the life of my son. The son dies. The Bible says that David stands up and walks straight into the presence of God and worships God. God, I've sinned against you. What I did grieved you. I take responsibility for my own sin. And he did not run or hide from the presence of God because he knew the goodness of God. And as he repented, as David repented, the difference between Adam and Eve and the difference between David that made David a man after his own heart. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. What do we do with the sin? Do we blame and accuse or do we actually take responsibility and in the midst of that, worship God because of his goodness? The Bible says that David then went in and comforted Bathsheba and Solomon was born. Son, Solomon is the lineage of, of, of Jesus Christ. Repentance brings freedom and the liberty of Christ. As we are responsible for our own souls, we are responsible for our own actions. Many times I've thought that I respond a certain way because of how someone treats me. But I'm growing up a little bit more and I realize if I'm driving and someone cuts in front of me and I get irritated, I am acting that way because I am choosing to act that way. Not because of anything anybody did to me. I am choosing to act this way with unforgiveness or bitterness you can do whatever you want to, but right now I want to take responsibility for my own life. I am acting like this and retaliating because I lack patience and I am choosing to act this way. We must take accountability for our own lives. And that's what David did. And in the midst of that, worship God. So then, so that's what happened. We, the, Adam and Eve sinned, they denied their sin, and the Bible says that they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And that was how the chapter of 3 ends. There is redemption. Obviously there is redemption. And everything is for our, own, for our own benefit. So to sum up chapter 3, we are created with a soul. The state of our soul is more important than anything else in our lives. We are made for God. We are made by God. We are made to submit to the will of God. The word of God is clear. It is always good. God gives us this ability to choose. I set before you life or death. You choose. We can be as free as we choose to be. The Bible says we can go ankle deep, knee deep, we can swim in the river of God. What do we really want in our lives? How important is the health of our own souls? 
We will sin and we will fall short. What do we do with that in our lives and the goodness and the grace of God? Do you know nobody else in this world will ever love us as much as Jesus does? Nobody will ever forgive us, be more gracious, fulfill every need and desire of our hearts. We can't look to other people to do that. We can't look to other people to fulfill what only God can do. We must have freedom and wholeness and bring the kingdom of God everywhere we go. We are able to be the least because we know who we are in God. The last week, I'm just going to end with a story. We went to um, San Francisco. Julia, Sarah, Debs and I. We had free airmail tickets. We were going to go last year. Our citizenship didn't come through. So I thought we lost the tickets, but they said, hey, the airline says, airmail tickets don't expire. So we decided we were going to go for four days during their reading week. And so we went for four days this last week. So I've been reading Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart. I've read it numerous times. I have it on audio. I've been listening to it. And in the one part of the book, he speaks about the sunset in the Big Sur, how beautiful it is and how your soul comes alive. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. We're going to the Big Sur. Like, the Big Sur is just an area of the coastline where you drive and it's, very, and it's very pretty. But the first day we were going to go to Napa Valley and go taste wine or something. I don't like wine, so I mean, I was like, okay, I mean, it's going to be beautiful. So we went to this one castle to taste, well, you had to pay $30 to get into the castle, but you could also taste wine while you were there. So I had to pay the entrance fee. We were standing, and the guy behind says something about, um, I, I didn't like, I can't, I, he made a joke. I actually didn't get the joke. I still don't know what the joke was. But he said something about me being Scottish. I was like, hmm, that's weird. How would you know that? Something I had done. I was, he says, oh, you must be Scottish. And when he said that, I remembered my grandmother's Scottish, and we had a lot of family in Scotland, and as a child, I had to wear those itchy kilns things, you know, those skirts? And I just remember that they used to itch me, as a scratch, and we had a crest that was really important to my grandmother that we always had to wear. And so I thought, hmm, that's amazing. So I wake up on the third day, and I'm like, God, this... I always woke up early in the hotel room, in the room that we were in, and I'm listening to the audio so that everybody else can carry on sleeping, and I'm listening to this, and I'm like, God... This is so amazing. I mean, we're going to be in the Big Sur. I'm thinking about my soul, and I'm just going to have this incredible experience. But I didn't know if we were going to be in the Big Sur during sunset, because we probably weren't. It was only going to be an hour drive. And there was this one beach called Pfeiffer Beach that I'd seen a picture of that we we drove down to. And um, in the pictures I'd seen, there was this hole, and the sunlight came through this hole, and it was, like, beautiful. I was like, wow, that's going to be amazing. So we find the beach, and Julia, Sarah, and Deborah sleep on the beach. They wanted to sleep. So I was like, amazing. So, of course, I can't sleep. So I'm walking down the beach, and I find this, and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's beautiful. But then I, I walk around the corner, and there's this, I never even knew that it, I, I mean, I'd researched it, and I didn't know about this. But there is this incredible caves these, that go out, like, miles, these, these caves into the ocean, and the sea is, is, is uh, coming into the ocean, and I'm like, this is just incredible. And then I look, and the rocks are covered with mussels. Now, when we lived in the British Virgin Islands for 10 years, none of the rocks had mussels. 
In South Africa, all the rocks had mussels. When I grew up, we always picked mussels. Every weekend, I knew how to pick the mussels, and I knew how to clean the mussels. We ate mussels with garlic butter. So I see these rocks with mussels, and I'm like, I'm so happy. I mean, I think, this is just making me so happy. And there's starfish everywhere. There's just starfish, the luminous green sea anemones. And I'm like, God, how incredible that you would do this for me. And as I'm standing there thinking of God, there had been a, people had been taking um, engagement photos in this cave, and they'd gone outside, the girl had this long red dress. I'm feeling like, I've just spoken to God about my soul. This is going to be amazing. And the next minute, this man walks into this, the cave with bagpipes and plays Amazing Grace. The presence of God falls into the cave where we are as Amazing Grace is echoed with these bagpipes. And God says, how much more do you want? <laughs> Only God knew that about the muscles, the bagpipes, playing Amazing Grace. My favorite thing in the world are sea caves and waterfalls. I'm in this sea cave, and I'm like just in awe of the presence of God. Because only God knows how to touch the depths of our soul to the degree that he did. When, they back, when they'd finished playing Amazing Grace, I was like, oh my gosh, there was amazing. This, that was amazing. There were two other women in the cave with me. The one lady says, the word is not amazing, she said. I think that was like the best experience of my life. The other lady's like, I think that was like a spiritual experience we all just had. And I, she was like, and I look back and the balloons from this photo shoot had got loose and they were floating in the sky. And she was trying to explain what God did, what God did. I was so excited. And they were on the other side of the beach. So I'm out of breath. And I was like, I get, eventually I get to them. I'm like, you will not believe what just happened to me. Judah says, no, I don't, but there's some selfish guy down the beach playing bagpipes <laughs> while I'm trying to sleep. Honestly, who would bring bagpipes to a beach and play bagpipes so selfish, she says to me. <laughs> so selfish. But you see, that was, that was the thing that God did. The day before, when you had your wine tasting that was $45, that was totally overpriced, was, Debs is like, this is Debs' word. She goes, it was supposed to be 45 minutes. Sarah wasn't 21, so she couldn't go in. I was like, oh, God, thank you. I don't have to pay. I can sit with Sarah. <laughs> they came out. It was supposed to be 45 minutes, an hour and 45 minutes. They had a charcuterie board. Debs is like, that was just the most magical experience of my life. <laughs> and I'm like, I could think of nothing worse than ta someone telling me the history of wine for an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> but you see, that is how God, in his goodness, he's looking for us. He wants us to submit our will to his, not to live for ourselves. Because as we come to this place in obedience, very clear, remember, it's very clear what the Word says about sin. It's very clear what it says we can and cannot do. It's not complicated. We don't have to make it complicated. But we can come into a place to submit ourselves to the will of God. 
The consequences of sin is death. Jesus took the consequences of sin and gave us life. God's will is for us to rule and reign, to walk in authority, and to have a soul that is whole and healthy before him. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that nobody knows us like you do. Father, you know every fear, every doubt, every insecurity. You will never leave us or forsake us. You are always good. Your word is always true. Father, I thank you that even in this week, you will speak to us, you will touch our souls, you will ignite our love and our passion. It's your goodness that leads us to repentance, Lord. Every circumstance in our life is your kindness, your graciousness. Father, we love you. As you've created us to respond to you, we ask that we would be conscious about what we think about, what we look at, what we feel, and that we would choose, that our wills would choose what you've created us to be. Father, we're devoted to you. We have nowhere else to go. You are the author and the finisher of our salvation. I thank you that you would ignite those parts of our soul and the depth of who we are in passion and love and adoration. Father, would you take us into a deeper place of love those that know their God that will do mighty exploits. All authority has been given to us. I thank you, Lord, that we would hate sin, but that we would always run to you. Lord, that we would grow up and take responsibility for our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not return void, but accomplishes everything that you have purposed. In Jesus' name, amen.